I would keep a list of all of the third-party vendors you use that store data and what type of data is in there. And I would put a data retention policy on each of those systems. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity, where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Well, hello, I'm Accidental CISO, and you are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show. We have another great episode planned for you today, and I really hope you find it valuable. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And remember, we're always looking for callers, so be sure to sign up to ask a question on a future episode. Today, we're going to dive into data privacy in small businesses. My guest host today is the Data Protection Officer and Head of Privacy at Asana. Prior to Asana, she was the Privacy, E-Commerce, and Consumer Protection Council at Electronic Arts and an attorney at the Federal Trade Commission. As if being a lawyer isn't hard enough, she also has a master's degree in computer science. As an active member of the cybersecurity community, she runs the Crypto Privacy Village at both DEF CON and B-Side San Francisco each year. Suffice it to say, she is the person that I want helping me answer questions about data privacy and cybersecurity in small businesses. I am beyond thrilled that you agreed to join me on the show today. Welcome, Whitney Merrill. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, this is awesome. We've chatted back and forth quite a bit on Twitter uh, about privacy, and uh, but never actually had a chance to speak in person. So this is awesome. I, you know, I had uh, no idea that you were running the Crypto and Privacy Village at DefCon. That's uh, such a huge amazing way to give back to the community. The concept of villages is something that I think is unique to cybersecurity conferences. So our listeners may not know what those are. Can you explain what a village is and the kinds of things that attendees can explore in the crypto and privacy village that you run? Yeah, absolutely. So born out of the hacker community are small subject matter groups that kind of get their own space at a larger conference like DEF CON to put on kind of a mini conference within the conference. And these have grown really organically over the past 10 years. The Crypto and Privacy Village last year was our ninth year putting on the Crypto and Privacy Village. But since we started doing it, there are now two dozen villages that have popped up over time across conferences. So the Crypto and Privacy Village talks about um, subject matter related to cryptography and privacy, the intersection between the two, but also how to um, break cryptography, break privacy, and then how can we build and make it better? Um, we also like thinking about puzzles and cryptography-based puzzles um, at the conference. It has grown and changed, and we have a wide variety of speakers, presenters, and workshops that appear. I actually, and this is like relatively new, I don't run the Crypto and Privacy Village anymore. I did found it. I ran it for nine years. I officially retired on January 1st of this year. So there's an amazing group of folks that I have handed it off to. And I'm so, so, so excited about that. But, you know, even though I'm no longer leading it, um, I haven't been booted out. Um, and I still, it holds a very like dear place in my heart. I've never managed to make it out to Vegas for DEF CON yet. So one of these years, I'm going to have to get out there. I was planning to go in uh, 2020 and then everything 
shut down and <laughs> so but uh hopefully maybe maybe this year or next year if i can make it work so i, I definitely want to get in and hang around in the crypto and privacy village they've got a policy village that you know governance risk and compliance nerds like me would also enjoy so yeah, the Policy Village is great, too. They're doing amazing things. Um, I think the great thing about Villages, too, is DEF CON can feel so overwhelming as such a large conference. For those listening, it's you know between 25,000 and 30,000 people in the hacker information security and related spaces that go to that conference each year. And so when you go, you're kind of like, where do I start? A village is a really great opportunity. There's a car hacking village. There's an aviation village. There is a lock picking village. So you can kind of go to that village because that's your area of expertise and spend time with it. Or you can go, I know nothing about this and I want to start to figure out what it's like. You have a place you can go to. And I think that's why they've really taken off is it gives people a better sense of community to especially when you get to that size um to still feel like you um aren't at a with 25,000 people you don't know. Yep, yeah, it's a it's such a neat concept at these conferences to just be able to explore kind of unstructured and and meet other folks that want to do the same. So let's see. I mean, we talked about uh you know this privacy village being at Defcon which is this big security conference and while some aspects of privacy are related to information security, privacy is a field of its own. And honestly, it's often misunderstood even by experienced information security professionals. And that has to leave small business owners leaving feeling confused. Uh, for our listeners that may not already know, can you kind of give us a brief overview of privacy to a, establish a working definition and help them understand you know, why it's so important even in small businesses? Yeah. So what's kind of coming out of privacy is People think about privacy and they're like, it's it's the right for me to not share information or to be private. And um, I think that's one piece of privacy. And so you're seeing terms like data privacy pop up or decisional privacy as it relates to the abortion conversation, right? They're starting to distinguish, well, what type of privacy? But generally, when we talk about privacy in the context of the tech space or in the business context, we're thinking about data privacy, right? The privacy of the data the rights behind the individuals whose data you might be collecting, et cetera. In Europe um, and other places throughout the world, they may use the word data protection instead, which often then also gets confused with security because people think, well, data protection means security. And actually, data protection is kind of probably the proper term to kind of talk about what we're all doing and so when people in the U.S. say privacy, they mean data protection as defined in Europe. So what that means is everything you need to do to protect the, the personal data that you're collecting. And that includes making sure you're telling people what you're doing with the data, how you're collecting the data, how you're storing the data, what you might then do with the data, how you share the data, and ultimately, how do you secure the data? And so that's that overlap with security and why it's like can be really misunderstood is privacy cannot be done and data protection cannot be done without security. You are you you are lost without it, um, because if you want to collect any data, you have to protect it. If you don't protect it, you're violating their privacy because it might be breached or you might accidentally leak it or share it in a way that's not intended. And, you know, businesses need to collect 
that data because it's very, it's very useful, uh, not just, you know, to uh, take advantage of, or, you know, people a lot of times think of businesses as, you know, abusing data and, and hoarding data. But at the end of the day, like providing good customer service, like you need some degree of this kind of data uh, in there, even small businesses uh, need to have some of this kind of data collected to provide good service to their customers. Right. And it's it's necessary to to you know provide maybe you have a contract with somebody and it requires you to collect or have that type of data that's core to your services and so one of i think the big misconceptions about privacy is people think well you should collect nothing it's like well that's one part of it you know control around the data by the individual whose data it's about is another piece and then another one is making sure that the businesses collecting this data are thinking thoughtfully about what data they're collecting, why they're collecting it, and do they still need it? Because what can happen, and a story I can tell that kind of illustrates that this is a small business, I guess this would fall in the small business category. When I was in eighth grade, I had to apply to high schools. And I applied to a high school, and I think probably at that time, and we're thinking like 1999, like earlier than that, I'm pretty sure the application asked for my social security number. And at that time, people used to give their social security numbers for all sorts of things. I'm not even sure I filled out the forms. It could have been my parents. I'm not sure. I don't even remember. I got a letter about a year and a half ago from that school that I did not attend, that their vendor had a data breach, and my social security number was part of that. It was still in there. It's still in there. And so I said, so of course, you know, I'm in this field and I'm like really fascinated, like I'm kind of a little pissed, um, but really interested on like what happened. Turns out they were using a vendor. First of all, they digitized all the records because back then it was paper. So they chose to digitize records for people who never attended the school. Why? 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 Like, why did you need to take my written records and not just shred them? I didn't attend your school. That's one question, like when you're thinking through the collection of your data, at what point do you not need it when you're digitizing or moving to a certain system or vendor? Like that's a great opportunity to do data cleanup. Two, once you put it in that vendor system, why did you keep on hold of it for all these years? I'm talking like 20 plus years. That data became a liability. Huge liability. And so this vendor they put it in, I, I asked them, I said, why didn't you delete it? Did you not have a data retention policy? And they said, we did. The vendor said data was deleted, but they weren't actually deleting it on their back end. And this is a tale as old as time, if anyone works in security and privacy. Making sure the data is actually deleted is so important. And like thinking through your vendors and where you're storing data is like a big piece of that privacy component for small businesses. And this was a small school, right? Like high school. It's not massive business. And um, I think they probably have learned a lot in that process of having to notify every student who ever applied to that school in the last 20 plus years and every student who attended that they had to pay for that, um, you know, credit monitoring and protection, which we all have so much of these days. But, you know, I think that's a big part of the small business is when you have that data, you're thinking, am I hoarding this or should I get rid of it? And that's a big piece of privacy, um, which people don't necessarily realize. It's like just that good governance and decision making around data. I was actually thinking the other day that one of the the key things with privacy in businesses 
we a lot of times think, you know, we're protecting our data, you know, from the perspective of the business, you know, financial data, intellectual property, all that kind of stuff. But it's stuff that the business owns. But we get into privacy and it's it's not their data. They're stewards of that data, but it's not their data. It's data that's owned by all of these individual people who that they have interacted with. And like it's it's a big mental shift, I think, for a lot of businesses to kind of change the way they look at it and realize that this this private data, it's it's not them that's been entrusted to them. Yeah. And you mentioned like how the data is used and those types of things. Like the people that are entrusting the data to them are expecting to know how that data is going to be used and be informed about that. And that, you know, it's there's there's a lot that that goes into to this. And it's not just as simple as, well, you know, this is data that belongs to the company and it's not a big deal if something happens to it or, you know, if it is that it only impacts the company. And, you know, there's huge wide ranging impacts to the people involved. I think people you know, in the past, especially as we moved from a paper world to digitization over the last 20 years, thought, well, we don't know what's valuable because we've never had these types of tools at our disposal. And so people have said, well, you should keep it because you don't know. Like, we might learn something. And I think we're finally maturing out of that sense and saying, keeping a bunch of data and hoarding data doesn't allow me to find signal amongst the noise. I'm not sure if you tweeted this or something else later that like data is not as valuable yes. as we as we really think it is. And this is I think this like example of this high school keeping my data, they realized it's so much more of a liability because there wasn't anything they were going to learn or do with that data in the first place. Um, and I think small businesses need to ask themselves that question. If, if you're going through a digitization exercise or even as you're collecting data about your customers, even with some email send vendors, they're, um, they charge by how many emails are in the system. And you're thinking, do you want to be paying for that? You could do two things. You could spend less money. That's great for the business. And two, make a decision that, okay, you only send emails for people who have like signed up for your email list in the last year or if you're actually getting open data which is you know it's like open you've opened the email data because there's a tracking picture was a separate privacy problem but people still do it and it's common in marketing do you want to still send people emails who aren't opening them after a while ironically the new york times does this i used to subscribe to a newsletter related to cooking and i got an email from them that says you don't read our newsletters we know you're not reading them but what I really do is I don't allow tracking pixels to load on my email uh, client. And so they eventually just cut me off from that that list. Um, and so there's there are risks there, too, that it's not a good end user experience. But, you know, you can think about keeping that data and how it might also save you money. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. You, you talk a little bit about Europe earlier. And, you know, we in the U.S. don't have like consistent privacy regulations like Europe does with GDPR. Uh, but we've got several states that have enacted privacy legislation in, in recent years. And, you know, I from a compliance standpoint, I imagine that creates some challenges for small businesses that want to operate and have customers in different states. Uh, on the, the privacy side of this, what sort of challenges does that, you know, patchwork nature of this right now present to small businesses and how should they be approaching privacy in that kind of current environment that we just have to deal with? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
I will preface by saying, while I am a lawyer, I am not anyone who's listening's lawyer. And so I hope none of this, well, none of it is. So none of this is legal advice. Shouldn't be taken as such. But depending on the size of your small business, right? Small businesses is a big word. Um, if you have a lawyer or you converse with lawyers, talking to your lawyers about privacy generally and what maybe you should be aware of and doing is a good place to start. If you're a small business who doesn't regularly engage a lawyer, I would say some of the things you need to most think about are what I call data governance, right? You think about the life cycle of the data. And this is kind of what I've been saying, you know, throughout this podcast. What do you collect? How long do you keep it? Where do you use? How do you share it? If you can start to answer these questions, not only can you publish a privacy statement or privacy policy, but you can start making decisions related to each step in that life cycle to make a decision about it. How long should you keep it? Should you even be keeping it? That's going to get you most of the way there. You're not going to be in full compliance with these laws, but you are starting to do the right thing. And a lot of the time, that is the most important thing, right? Upset people, breached systems, cause regulatory concern, cause you legal concern, cause you whatever it might be. So if you continue to think and do the right thing, you're going to get yourself in the right direction. To be truly in full compliance with those laws, I highly recommend talking to a lawyer. But most of the laws across the U.S. are some version of GDPR light or CCPA in California, which is the California privacy law that's been in effect since 2020. All of them are, you know, kind of giving you guidance about collecting data, how you give notice about how you're collecting data, the right to opt out of the certain types of collection of data. They're all very similar. And so thankfully, even though we're living in a patchwork of laws from a privacy perspective, the differences aren't too crazy to feel like you have this like hard, difficult program. I will say it's not as difficult for those who don't know. There are 53 data breach notification laws in the United States that are all vastly different from one another. It is not that bad. Uh, it is not as bad as that situation. And so... I have some hope for folks that like if you're understanding where your data is and what you're doing with it, that you should be on the right path. If there was one thing that you wished all small business owners knew about privacy, what would that one thing be? I'll give instead of what they should know, but rather what they should do. Okay. I would keep a list of all of the third-party vendors you use that store data and what type of data is in there. And I would put a data retention policy on each of those systems. And retention policy can look very different. Like I'm my email, for example, Gmail, right? If you're using like Google Mail for your small business, I'm going to keep my emails around for so long as I have a business purpose. And so that might be indefinitely. But maybe for your email send system, you're like, I'm only going to keep them around for two years. Once you start doing those things, if your small business grows and turns into this much larger thing, or even if it stays at its size, you can answer basic questions about that data and deal with it as needed. And so you're kind of setting yourself up for success to just have that list in one place. Here's a really good example. You stop using the vendor. Did you tell the vendor that you want them to delete all your confidential business data? You should do that. But you may not know until you have a list of all your vendors and as you're offboarding. So it's really management of third-party vendors will get you 
um, a lot of the way there from a privacy perspective. Excellent. Yeah, that's a really good tip because I'm a big fan within small businesses of trying to outsource things as much as you reasonably can so that you can stay focused on you know what it is that your business is supposed to be doing instead of trying to manage IT and, and infrastructure and applications and all these other other things. And with that outsourcing comes this very issue is when you change vendors, do need to go back and make sure that the life cycle of that data is closed out and that they delete your information. That's an excellent tip. Yeah. And like the vendor, a lot of these vendors, you know, especially if you get a vendor that serves really large businesses, they're going to have tooling that help you get to the right direction uh, or get you in the right direction. They may have a retention policy, admin setting, whatever it may be. It's, you know, the security community loves to roll our own, not crypto, but roll our own, uh, you know, email service, et cetera. You know, small businesses take advantage of the fact that the vendors have thought through these compliance things, too. And that's another thing you can do is you can go to your vendor and say, hey, I'm thinking about how to be more compliant with privacy laws in the United States or in Europe. What do you do? And what is your tooling offering for that? And th they probably have documentation online um, and, and, and options and things that you can do to manage that because we've all had to kind of get on board over the last five years that GDPR um, has been around. And if they can't answer those questions intelligently or act like it's the first time they've ever heard that question, they might not be the right vendor to work with. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hurt to say to the vendor, like, what are you doing? How are you thinking about these things? Especially if they're going to be stewards of really sensitive data. I actually hear about this more frequent than others is like tax advisors, right? A lot of small businesses in the tax preparation space with a lot of really sensitive data. There is a space that if you are doing that, you need to think through where are those documents sitting? How long are you keeping them? Because I'm sure they have record retention requirements that you want to make sure you're keeping. But how can you better protect that? And what's the right place to store all that information to protect your your clients? Good point. So Whitney, I've got some callers lined up for us here with some questions. Uh, are you ready to go to the phones and take some calls? Yeah, let's hear from callers. Excellent. Let's go. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast. And sign up to be a caller on a future episode. Our first caller today is JT from Michigan. Uh, hello, JT. How are you doing? How can we help you? Hey, uh, uh, great to be here. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, uh, so I'm a I'm a GRC analyst um, for a, a public uh, research uh, university, but I'm looking to get into uh, freelance consulting, security consulting, and specifically targeting SMBs that handle regulated data, whether it's law firms, uh, health clinics, uh, etc. The one thing I'm finding is that just right off the bat, the moment I start collecting leads on my website, a bunch of stuff is in scope, a bunch of privacy regulation scope, and even though this is literally my field. It feels like such a monster just to start collecting email addresses, especially if I want to use third-party tools, uh, CRMs, I, you know, try to automate the sales cycle. So is there any, any best practices or anything advice you can give me on that? Yeah, it's a great question. So whether the law applies to you specifically, I highly encourage you to speak to an attorney about that. And I just want to be clear that 
not giving you legal advice, but what likely is happening is that some laws probably aren't being triggered. The threshold for California's privacy law, for example, is is pretty high. And so just collecting a bunch of names on a form, you know, or, or leads, et cetera, probably isn't going to trigger that. Um, but again, you know, definitely speak to someone about your specific case. For Europe, the thresholds aren't quite like that. So if you're starting to engage or collect information from Europe, things might be triggered. That being said, I think the risk is pretty low. But in order to do kind of the right thing, I would I would do kind of what I've been talking about on the podcast thus far, which is think through what you're collecting, why you need it, where you're going to store it, and how long you're going to keep it, and if you're going to share it with anyone. If you can answer those questions, then when you're collecting that information, you can kind of tell the people that information, right? Especially if you're collecting it from people who might be more sensitive about their data, like lawyers, um, and say, hey, I collect this data in order to provide you marketing and to tell you about my services. The data is stored securely, and it is not shared with anything, anyone or any third party, unless it is to provide my services to you. And then that's it. And then like, then you think through how long do you want to store that data? And you could even disclose that piece of it as well. You could say, and I store data related to this, you know, two years after my last engagement with you, right? You can, and that's, and now you're hearing like, this is the start of what is a privacy policy. And I think if you can answer those questions, you're already doing the right thing. And I was saying before, upset people create legal problems for you. And so if you're transparent and open with people and do the right thing, you're going to be fine. And I am personally like super, super into like digital privacy. So this is also very much my uh, sort of a passion anyway. Um, and then, yeah, it's the, it's when it starts touching everything is, um, is where I had the most concern and sort of as like a follow-up to that is, or things like, a, you know, like privacy policy as a service, like there's, there's those things are coming out now. So I, I want to like be as low maintenance about this as possible, but I also feel that because I'm very specifically, even though like I probably am not going to target clients in, in Europe. However, my clients absolutely are likely to, to, you know, fall into scoop. So even if I don't care about GDPR as an individual uh, consultant, because that is the type of consulting I want to do, I feel like there's this very specific need that I have to check every box and, and dot every I as a marketing uh, item, if, if nothing else, like as a trust, right? Like I do in fact know what I'm doing. So that's, that's my other concern here. And, and JT, something else that uh, you can do in, in your consulting, and this will depend on the engagement, obviously, but uh, and and how much interaction you're going to have to do with your customers' data and the type of data. But in my own consulting, frequently I'll be sort of onboarded into my client system, and when I work with their information, it's in their systems, and so that it's still covered under their information security program and and all of that. I'm not pulling the data down into my systems. Uh, you know, my computer, whatever to to work with it, um, if it's, you know, some sort of sensitive data or something. So uh, as I go through the the contracting process, a lot of times there's there's usually a, a stipulation there that, you know, I will, you know, protect the, the data in accordance with their policies uh, and such as well. Um, and by 
And by keeping that that separate and having them onboard you, if you're going to be needing to work with uh, their data a lot, that that tends to to help and and may ease your mind as well because then you don't actually have it in your systems the same way. You're not storing it. You don't have to worry about you know backing it up in that whole life cycle and deleting it at the end because you're keeping it in their Google workspace or you're keeping it in their Microsoft Office 365 environment to interact with it. That is a really great point. Even when I'm looking at third-party vendors on behalf of a company, this is something we think through too, right? Hey, if they're going to have access to this level of data, issue them a laptop on our system, right? It saves them the headache. And so you can even ask that question, hey, do you want me to work on your hardware and software, right? Like that'll save you a lot of headache because when the engagement's over, it's on them to get rid of it. But to the extent that you're collecting stuff separately out of engagements and managing even your own files, um, you know, I think it still mitigates a lot of that like confidential data concern. Uh, but I would have a retention policy for engagements where you're not working on somebody else's device. How long do you want to keep information related to that? And then communicate that to your clients. Hey, I keep data for one year after um, as a matter of like record keeping um, and it will be deleted after. But if you're going to say that to customers, make sure it's true. And that's kind of on the privacy policy front, too. There are all sorts of generators. The most number one thing is if you get a template from a privacy statement or privacy policy somewhere in the world, make sure it's accurate. Read through it. And if it says something that you're like, I don't do that, don't put it in there. That's going to get you in trouble. Um, so make sure it's accurate. Great. Um, thank you, Whitney. No yeah. problem. Thanks, JT. Did you have any other other follow up questions for us today? Uh, no, I think that's uh, that's all I have. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Whitney and AC, and uh, look forward to hearing hearing how this turns out, how the show yeah, comes thank out. You. Yeah, no problem. Great. Pleasure. Good, good having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Bye. Our next caller today on the phone here is Amanda from Missouri. Amanda, welcome to the show. How are you? I am good. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing very well. How can we help you today? Um, so I have a couple of questions. I have a photography client of mine that I have been doing marketing for, um, and we are building out a data privacy policy for her website since she does use the images for marketing purposes. And I'm just wanting to know what would be like the best way to build that out for her that would be secure and also protect her and her client confidentiality. It's a great question. So there are a couple issues that I see here and so I'll respond to them um, in different parts. So first, um, one, you know, if, you're, if your client has a lawyer that they speak to, I always recommend people if they're trying to meet certain types of legal obligations to talk to their own lawyer. Um, and none of what I can say is legal advice. Something I have to say as a lawyer, it's just one of those things. Uh, so for those listening, I apologize. I've said it like five times. Um, but for a privacy policy, what's kind of happening in the privacy world is the traditional privacy policy has become more of a privacy notice or a privacy statement. It's like, an informational document that tells your clients what your practices around their data are. And so the most important thing is for that to be truth truthful. So as you're building that out, you know, you can look at what other 
companies have done from a privacy statement, or if you have a lawyer that you work with, they might have a template. But you can build out that privacy statement or privacy policy to explain what the practices actually are. If you're hoping to get the proper rights to use those photographs in certain ways, you should explain what your practices are in that privacy notice, but it is really important that that be in the underlying contract with the um, photographer, you know, between the client and the photographer, mostly because even though it's in the privacy notice, you want to make sure you have all the proper legal rights to use, share that data, especially for marketing purposes. And so those are kind of the two major issues that I see um, are really important. Um, the most important thing in privacy is really making sure that the client's expectations are properly set, right? If they're happy and they know what's happening with their photographs, they will be really supportive of them being used in marketing materials. I just went through this, actually. I got married in October and my photographer posts blog posts, et cetera. And obviously I'm a very private person. And I said in my contract, I went and marked it up and said, you can't do this with the data. And But it was clear when I read the contract what she had planned to do or what rights she was trying to get. And so I think, you know, as long as you're clearly communicating and giving your clients options, you're going to get the folks who are really excited to have their photography used in marketing and those who want to opt out. And so that's kind of high level thoughts. Yeah, This is really kind of an interesting question because most of the privacy data that we talk about typically is like text-based data. It's information about somebody, whereas this is like images of a person and it, it crosses that line. Is an image of a person like this still considered, you know, personally identifiable information at that point? I imagine it would be, even though it's not the traditional like birthday and name and, and those kinds of things. Yeah. And that's the reason that I brought this to her attention, that this was something that we really needed to build out in addition to this, because I have seen image websites where you can actually drag an image and drop it and find find out like where that image came from or any kind of like information about the person in that image, like facial recognition. So that's the biggest problem that's like that's why I was I just want to get opinion about that because you know with facial recognition it can be challenging if your images are used for marketing purposes. Yeah, and so if if the the concern too is like what vendors um she might be using to, you know, store those images she's taking and what they might do with it too, right? Like you as the person collecting the data are responsible for all of the vendors that you onboard to then store, process, use that data. And so making sure that you're vetting the vendors, understanding what their practices are before you're dumping, you know, potentially sensitive image or personal data about someone in there. I will say for those listening, the definition of personal data, right? We've heard PII, personally identifiable information, has traditionally meant name, email, social security number, ID, like those types of things. But what's happening in privacy over the last five years is that definition has broadened significantly. And personal data means any piece of information that can be linked back to you indirectly or directly. So very, very broad. Um, it could be metadata about how you use the service 
because we know that that metadata is tied back to you, this person. And so when you think of it that way, the chances are that the new, instead of all data is not personal data except for when it is, we're finding that we're much more finding ourselves in a situation that everything is personal data unless it's not. And if you start thinking about data, photography, everything that's being collected in that context, um, you can help you ask the right questions. So I think you were issue spotting right on um, that those things are sensitive and they should be aware of their spatial recognition. This is why I wanted to bring this up and ask the question. She is actually in the state of Virginia which is challenging because they just came out with the consumer data privacy law. Should we include information regarding that policy as part of her privacy policy so then her consumers and clients know that we are potentially planning to adhere to that? Because I know that that is a pretty stringent piece of legislation, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this is a great question and a hard one, actually, because... You know, one of the big things that legislatures have feared about having privacy notices is how are they going to, or privacy um, laws is how are they going to impact small businesses? And it will it be so burdensome that like small businesses just won't be able to survive or maintain? And so that's always top of mind. And I think I used to work at the Federal Trade Commission and they take a very um, scaled approach to enforcement of the law. And And I, I, I can't speak to how regulators are going to enforce this law, but what, what gives me comfort is they take into account how much volume of data is being collected, the size of the business, what type of data, how are they using it, how are they sharing it, and like how you know, compliant you necessarily have to be and like whether or not you'll get a slap on the wrist versus like a massive fine, right? Like we assume companies like Google should be have all the resources at their disposal to be compliant with the law. So when they're not, that's not good. But a small business, that's a little bit different. That being said, I'm not saying you can survive not being compliant with the law, but it's, you know, just keep that in mind that. So for Virginia, if you truly want to be compliant and represent that you're compliant with that law, I recommend I would ask a lawyer and say, what what are some easy things that I need to do? But that's costly. So the other option is to figure out whether or not you're even subject to that law. And then if you aren't, you know, say, hey, we're aware of this. We are not subject to it. But here's how we do privacy. Should you have any questions to kind of, you know, create that trust with the customers that you're working with, the data that you're collecting. If you are subject to that law, you know, do not represent, hey, we're super compliant with this law if you're not and you haven't gone through that gap assessment. And again, really the best people to talk to are, you know, lawyers on this issue. Um, but for Virginia, you know, it's going to depend on how big the business is, what type of data is collected about whether or not they're subject to it. And Whitney, you hit on the 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 one the one thing that I was going to add was sort of the aspirational policy piece is, you know, publishing a privacy policy or publishing any policy that's that's aspirational that you aren't doing yet can be dangerous, you know. So I would prefer to have a a policy that is accurate to what they're doing today, even if it is not fully in line with requirements, and then have an action plan for them to get compliant before updating and communicating a policy that says they're compliant. Completely agree. 
Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was extremely helpful. Yeah. Thanks, Amanda. Appreciate you having you join the show with us. It was uh, good having your, your questions. Those were excellent questions and good discussion. Yeah. Thanks so much. So, Whitney, we've had a couple callers with really good questions today. Uh, any sort of final thoughts you want to offer on the conversation and the topics that we had? Yeah, privacy can seem really scary when you don't, you know, especially with all the new laws. And I just want to say there are resources out there. Um, you know, lawyers are your friend in this situation, but also doing the right thing, being a good steward of that data, as you were saying before, good data governance is going to get you a really like long way and really vetting those vendors. Um it's going to bring your privacy program for your small company from nothing to something, like pretty substantially something, because th those are where your biggest risks are going to lie. So um, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to see what's out there. But most importantly, you know, be truthful about your practices. And uh, I know you're active in the community. Where can folks find you online? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is WBM312. I'm also on Mastodon with a similar handle with, I'm on infosec.exchange. So I'm WBM312 at infosec.exchange on Mastodon should Twitter just cease to work one day, but mostly still on Twitter. Very good. Excellent. So folks can, can find you there and I'll, I'll put those in the the show description as well, in case anybody wants to follow up uh, with any any questions or reach out to you. So, uh, so thank you, Whitney. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join me here and answer questions and help small business owners and leaders learn more about privacy. Uh, so I hope this is really valuable to them because it's a really important topic. So, and last but not least, we do this show as a way to help small businesses learn about cybersecurity. And without you listening and sharing episodes every month, I suppose we'd just be here talking to ourselves. Uh, so I want to offer a huge uh, thank you to you, our listeners. That's it for today. I am Accidental CISO. And until next time, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Focivity. Tune in next time when we'll hear accidental CISO say, Well, looks like we got to pay the ransom. <laughs> Game over, man.